0: When Samuel got to be an old man, he set his sons up as judges in Israel. His firstborn son was named Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were assigned duty in Beersheba. But his sons didn't take after him. They were out for what they could get for themselves, taking bribes and corrupting justice. Fed up, all the elders of Israel got together and confronted Samuel at Ramah. Look. You're an old man, and your sons aren't following in your footsteps. Here's what we want to do. Appoint a king to rule us just like everybody else. When Samuel heard their demand, give us a king to rule us, he was crushed. How awful. Samuel prayed to God. God answered Samuel, go ahead and do what they're asking. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, they've been behaving like this, leaving me for other gods. And now they're doing it to you. So let them have their own way, but warn them of what they're in for. Tell them the way kings operate, just what they're likely to get from a king. These are the words of the Lord.
1: Hey guys, good morning. Why don't you look at your neighbor real quick and say hi. (laughs) Hey, for those of you who um, may not know me, my name is Luis and I am one of the pastors here. And uh, if this is your first time at Taproot, welcome. Welcome to our church. Um, On the back of every chair you'll find a little Connect card um, if this is your first time here, would you take a few moments to uh, grab that card, fill it out, and then uh, before you leave today, just stop by the welcome bus in the foyer, and you can drop it off, <laughs> welcome bus, and drop it off there, and uh, if you do that, we have a, a small gift to give you, just a, just a simple way for us to say to you, um, welcome to our church. We are so glad that you are here. Okay, as uh, a lot of you guys know, I, um, I was born and raised in Mexico, and uh, one of the things that my family did a lot is we did a lot of uh, family dinners, okay? We ate a lot of food around the table, and we talked to each other, we listened to each other, we engaged with each other, and we did this a lot. My, my mom was really busy, single gal, worked a lot, but she made it a point to, uh, to sit with us and have family dinners just about every single day. And, uh, you know, if I were to try to um, summarize what the uh, Hispanic culture is in five words, this is what I would say. I would say that uh, my people are about uh, faith, family, food... Fiesta, I'm just trying to go with, with the Fs, you know. I'm hoping it's working. And, uh, and football, the, the real one, okay? That's right. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> but family and food uh, were a big deal for me growing up, you know. Uh, one of my favorite movies is the movie called McFarlane USA. Anybody ever seen that movie? Great film. You should watch it if you haven't. There's a line in the movie that says this. This gal, Mrs. Diaz, is saying to the coach, um, "How do you expect to be a family if you don't eat together?" And uh, this idea of, of family and food, I've tried to carry it into my family. So my family, we try to do family dinner as as as. As much as we can, we can't do it every single day because of our schedule and you know meetings and uh, practices and other things. But we try to do it as many times as we can during the week. We we sit together for dinner around the table and uh, we talk, we engage, we listen. And one of the things that we do after family dinner is that that's when we have our our family devotions. We we open up the scriptures, we 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 pray together, we. Uh, talk about Jesus. And uh, one thing that I try to do every single time that we do that is before we open up the scriptures, before we um, ask any questions, before we pray, before we do anything else, I, I try to tell my kids, I try to remind them of this every single um, time. And I tell them that this is, the most, this is the most special time of the day because we get to open up God's word as a family. And uh, I feel like that every Sunday. It is a real joy to open up the scriptures with you. God's family. It's a big deal. It is pretty special that we get to open up God's word and hear God re-speak his words. And one thing that I... Promise you, church, is that at Taproot we will be committed to God's Word. If you were to ask me why, I would say to you first, it's a part of our mission. Our mission at Taproot is to make disciples of Jesus. We want to see people come to know Christ. We want to equip those disciples, train them, see them grow and mature, and then send them to do the work of bringing the King into your community, into your neighborhood, into your uh, work, into your sphere of influence. We want to see His kingdom come to our community. The Bible says in Matthew 28 that we are to make disciples of Jesus, to baptize them and and to teach them all that God has commanded If you were to ask me why, why will we we be committed as a church to the Scriptures? I would tell you that the teaching, sound, strong, biblical teaching will produce true and vigorous affections for God. Jonathan Edwards said this. This is on the screen. uh, True spiritual and gracious affections come from the enlightening of the mind in order to understand the things that are taught of God in Christ. False affections arise from ignorance rather than instruction. But the Scriptures are able to give to the saints spiritual and supernatural understanding of divine things. The Apostle Paul said this, I charge you, young Pastor Timothy, to do this. Preach the Word. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. And they will turn from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's in 2 Timothy. And lastly, I will let me read to you this quote that I read this week from a guy named John Cooper. This guy wrote a great blog um, uh, giving some insight about uh, something happening in uh, popular Christianity where uh, young evangelical evangelical leaders are denying Christ after many years of uh, preaching and singing Jesus, but this is what he said. This is on the screen as well. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who have led a generation who did not believe in the supremacy of truth. So my promise to you is that we will value this book. We will open it every single week and talk about it because truth is what the Bible says. These are the very words of God. So with that said, if you've got your Bibles, uh, open up your Bibles, open up your phone and uh, uh, go to the book of uh, 1 Samuel. And uh, last week we... um, we looked at that renegade period in the Bible known as the Judges. That was a bizarre time, in strange time in the history of Israel. But what we saw in the Judges is we saw the story of the fall in their continual downward cycle of sin. The phrase that really encapsulates and summarizes the book of Judges is the last line of the book of Judges, which just says this, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And I think that if you are honest with yourself, I think that at some point in our lives, that little phrase has been true of all of us. We have all, at one time or another, we've all done what seems right in our own eyes, but we also saw not only the story of the fall, but we also saw the story of redemption in the Judges. Every single time that Israel fell to a foreign enemy because of their disobedience to God, God would raise up a deliverer. God would raise up a savior, a judge from among Israel who would defeat their enemy and bring about this era of peace and blessing and flourishing. And so what we saw is that God is a faithful God to an unfaithful people and that is really, really good news, right? Now we looked at the story of Judges as a part of a, a sermon series that we just called The Great Story. And throughout this story, as you've heard me say, like a, like a broken record, we are trying to take these big stories of the Bible and we are trying to plug them into the overarching storyline of the Bible that we have uh, uh, defined with four big words, which are creation, fall, fall redemption, and restoration. We're trying to see how the whole of Scripture points us to Jesus. And so that brings us today to the, the story or the period of the kings. Now the plan for today is this. We, I just want to give us a little bit of context. Then I want to talk about the good kings and the bad kings that we see in this chapter of God's great story. Then we have to talk about David, who was the greatest king in Israel's history, and then answer this question. How do we get from the kings to King Jesus? Okay? So let me just pray real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll get rolling here. Father, I thank you for your words. Your words are true. I pray today, Lord, that you would speak to your people as we open up the scriptures Speak to us, equip us, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, do a work that is only in your hands to do. I pray that Jesus would be made much of today. I pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus. I pray that your spirit would move and uh, help us to see wonderful things in your word. That your spirit would do. Uh, Bring life, conviction, empowerment, awakening. Draw us to Yourself, God, and do this, Lord, for Your glory, for Your name's sake, for the good of Your people, and so that the gospel could continue to advance. And may we be a little embassy of heaven this morning. In Jesus' good name, amen. So let's talk about the kings and their books. The kings and their books. Now, the 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 time span of the period of the kings is almost five hundred years long. It goes from 1020 before Christ to 587 before Christ, when Babylon conquered Israel and most of the Israelites were taken away as prisoners of war and and here is a broad look at all the books of the Bible that detail how this period shook out. The first one is 1 Samuel. In here, this book is about Samuel's work as the last judge of Israel, and it tells us about the choosing of Israel's first king, which was King Saul. This book also introduces us and shows us the rise and the exploits of young David. Then we get to Second Samuel, which tells us of David's rise to the throne in his infamous failure with Bathsheba, in his disastrous dealings with his son Abnon and Absalom. Second Samuel also tells us of the Davidic covenant that God made with him. Then you get the first Kings, which is about Solomon's united kingdom and the building of the temple in Jerusalem, followed by the dividing of the nation into Judah in the south and Israel in the north after his death. And from this point forward in, in these history books through Second Kings, we read about the divided kingdom and the very many kings who ruled and governed in this divided kingdom. There were 19 kings listed uh, in Israel till they fell to the Assyrians, and there were twenty kings listed in Judah until they fell to the Babylonians. Then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and basically this is like the Cliff's Notes version of First and Second Samuel and Kings. And its its focus, its emphasis is on God keeping His word to David, and we'll see that more in a second. These books are known as the history books from 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles. And here is where we are in the timeline of God's great story. Okay, We have seen God make a promise. We saw God make a covenant with Abraham that he was going to make him the father of a great nation in Genesis 12. Then we saw that God also promised that he was going to give this promised land to his people in Genesis 15. We then saw that this great nation was was set free from slavery in Egypt after 400 years in the book of Exodus. And we saw them wandering for 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Numbers under Moses' leadership. We saw God give them the land he promised under Joshua in the book of Joshua. And we saw this odd, bizarre, strange period known as the judges, where people did whatever they wanted to do, what was right in their own eyes, because there was no king in Israel. And so now we get to the kings, this 500-year period. Okay, you follow me so far? Okay. Now, our scripture reading for this morning was 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. Thank you to Dana for reading that. And when you read these words, there's a few things that just quickly stand out. First, the people didn't want a bad ruler. They didn't want Samuel's sons leading them. Second, they they thought that if they could just be like the other nations in having this physical king, ruling and sitting in this physical throne, that this would bring an end to all of their troubles. Third, their hearts really were not submitted to their one true king who was God. And so God allows them to pursue those desires and he gives them a king. And this all starts with King Saul. Now, considering that the people wanted to be like the other nations, you would assume that they would choose a guy who looked the part. 1 Samuel 9, 2 describes Saul as strong, as handsome, and head and shoulders above everybody else. In one word, this text describes Saul as kingly. But the reality is that this guy was a train wreck. He was fearful, he was jealous, he was full of selfish ambition, he was not leading God's kingdom, he was about building his own kingdom, and his impatience leads him to directly disobey a word from God, and eventually it costs him the throne. But the interesting thing about Saul is that he is a great picture of all of the kings, because he is the first one, he's kind of like this this forerunner for what we will see in the rest of the kings in this 500 years. He is good on some days, and he is really bad on others. And we see this theme consistently throughout this period. We've got good king moments, we've got really bad king moments. David, who we will... Look at more in a second, who was the greatest king in the history of Israel, but he made some really proud and arrogant decisions that caused the entire nation to suffer. Solomon, who was the wisest person ever to live and who showed remarkable resolve and faithfulness after following his dad, David, but he eventually falls prey to idol worship. Because of his love and his lust of women. Ahab married a gal named Jezebel. She led the entire nation into idol worship. Yet late in King Ahab's life, he repents. And the Lord shows mercy and compassion to him. But after he died, his entire family was destroyed. You've got Young King Josiah, this young faithful king who who led the entire nation into a revival of some sorts by bringing his kingdom back to the scriptures and restored the temple after the Assyrians destroyed it. And finally, we've got King Hezekiah, really great king of Judah who gets sick, prays to God, asks for more years of life, and so God gives him 15 years. Seems great until you read that he allowed the Babylonian officials to check out all the riches in the treasury of Judah, which leads to the Babylonian siege of 587. During those 15 extra years God gave him, this guy has a son named Manasseh, who is arguably the worst king in the history of Israel. So you see this pattern? Good kings... Bad kings, good moments and in, in bad moments. Yes, there are some wonderful things that happen to the nation of Israel during this time. They become this established nation with an organized civil government. They eventually, after David reigned, they have peace on every side because of their military might and the fact that God was with them. They become one of the wealthiest nations in all of the earth and people come from all over to see how God had blessed them. But what is intriguing in this 500-year period is that even though there's this organized civil government led by a king, this does not stop the people from unbridled sin and idolatry. And what's worse is that the king was the one who did most of this stuff from performing their own sacrifices led by King Saul to Baal worship led by Ahab's wife to forgetting the law of God to killing their own prophets. So during this era, there was mutiny, there was lying, there was deceit, there was immorality, murder, assassination, and promises broken. It's this time of back and forth, good and bad. And here is where we have to pause to draw out an application. Let me make this statement. Having a king is important. Having leaders is important. Now now you hang with me while I talk about this. This is the lesson we learned last week from the book of Judges. When there was no king, the people were crazy in the way they lived. The need for authority is important, and we really could see that all throughout Scripture. God established authority. Civil government was God's idea. And we were made in the image of God to live under authority. God God created all of us with this understanding of authority and governance because He made us in His image. Wayne Grudem said this in his Systematic Theology, When the Bible discusses the way in which God relates to the world in creation and redemption, the persons of the Trinity are said to have different functions, roles, or activities. While the persons of the Trinity are equal in all of their their attributes, they nonetheless differ in how they relate to one another in the world in creation and redemption. The Son and the Holy Spirit are equal in deity to God the Father, but they are subordinate in their roles. So this this shows us that if the Godhead has authority and humble subordination, in that God created us in his image, we were created to live in, in under authority and in humble subordination. We see this in every institution in the world, from marriage and family to business and to the church. Having kings is important also because it shows us that we cannot live without authority. As a matter of fact, without authority, we will destroy ourselves, just like we saw in the book of Judges. And just like in societies where the rule of law is non-existent, societies who, and people who don't live under authority will destroy themselves. So, so being created to live under authority doesn't mean that we do, though. Sin, which runs rampant in all of us, just like we see from the opening pages of Scripture, fights authority and doesn't like the bounds that it feels that authority puts on us. Sin was at the root of Adam and Eve eating from the fruit that God told them not to eat. This is why we we get angry when our boss holds us accountable. Or we get uptight when we are asked to do something by an authority figure. It is a reason some teens go through those rebellious years to do whatever they want. And it's the reason why a lot of young millennials want to throw off all restraint in law. Even though we were created for it, it doesn't mean that we do. So even though it's important, having a physical king is not enough. Even though we were created for this and we understand the need for authority, there is something in the story of the kings that is challenging to our hearts. This is one of the striking pictures we see in the story of the Bible because on one hand, you've got the story of judges and you've got people who had no king and they were living sinfully and without restraint. And on the other hand, you've got the story of the kings. And we see that having a king, a physical king on a physical throne, did not stop the people from living sinfully and without restraint. Even though the kings were looked upon as saviors, nothing changed in how the people were living and acting. And this is why we are given this story, one of the reasons anyway. To help us see this big point that mere human kings, mere human uh, authorities, mere human leaders are not saviors, and they cannot stop the evil that lurks in a human heart. Physical leaders are important, but they are not what keeps us from our sin, our fallenness, and our darkness. And as the story of the Bible goes forward, this is one of, the Jews, one of the mistakes that the Jews make. They believe that there will come a king who will save Israel through political and military might. This is why they were so confused when Jesus showed up. Because when he came, they were looking for this military leader to conquer Rome. This political leader to throw off Caesar and a national king who would once again restore Israel to its prominence. So you can imagine the difficulty when, as they're looking for this military and political king, they get this peasant carpenter from this insignificant family. You can imagine their amazement when the so-called king of the Jews is being hung in this humiliating cross by the hands of their most hated enemy. And you can see this... Clearly, when the disciples asked Jesus this question after his resurrection. Okay, Jesus, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.6. So this is a huge part of the story of the Bible. But a physical king... It's not enough. An earthly, mere human king will never be enough and cannot stop sin from running roughshod over humanity. Listen, it's true that good leaders and good kings are a remarkable blessing. We should pray for those people to be placed in authority. We should do our research, we should vote, we should be engaged, we should do all those things, but here is truth, that will never be enough. As important as all that is, they will never be enough. If we were to be honest with ourselves, this is much of our disappointment and frustration. We think that the right leader, the right president, the right politics will change the way people live. That might be helpful, but the truth is that we are all longing for the right king who will lead us from our decadence and lead us into this world of utopia. We're all looking for the right person, the right leader, the right president, the right governor, the right pastor, the right spouse, the right boyfriend, the right girlfriend, the right boss, to come along and lead us to the proverbial promised land. And like I said, this stuff is good. We should desire and pray that those things and those people are put in place, but it's never going to be enough because a physical king cannot stop the sin lurking inside every human heart. Now that does not mean that we should not be involved in the process of hope making that happen. But it just means that we should enter the process with an understanding of the limitations that a physical mere human leader will bring. We can't put all our hope in earthly kings. Does that make sense? So where's our hope? <laughs> because that seems a bit hopeless, right? What's, what's the hope? Well, first let's look at the best king in the history of Israel, which is David. When you think of the kings, it would not be complete unless we talk about this guy, David. He did some amazing things before he became a king. He was a shepherd boy who God picked out during Saul's reign to be the next king of Israel. He killed the Philistine giant, Goliath, with a rock shot from his slingshot. He served in King Saul's court as a musician until his military might became so famous that he became a powerful general, leading Israel to victory after victory. And then he goes into hiding because of King Saul's jealousy and fears. He is pursued for almost three years until Saul eventually dies in battle. And something to notice that is subtle and could be missed is this, before David becomes a king, in 1 Samuel, who is the first character that we see wielding a spear? Goliath, right? In the rest of the book, who is the next famous character that we see throwing spears? Saul. Well, what about David? The Bible says that David shouted at Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord. Now why would the writer give us this picture? David's enemies wielding, throwing, using spears, but David, at least at that point, nothing. The writer wants you to see The David will not rule like Saul or Goliath. He won't rule with oppressive power. He won't rule trying to install fear. He won't rule trying to be abusive and a bully. He won't rule trying to be a tyrant. He will be a different type of king. The kind of king we all pray and hope for. After he becomes king, he returns the Ark of the Covenant to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. He establishes the city of Jerusalem as the chief city of Israel and becomes known as the city of David. By the end of his life, Israel was the strongest military nation, a leading nation politically and one of the wealthiest nations in the world. He reigned for 40 years, the most glorious years in Israel. In every sense of the word, David was a king, powerful, mighty, strength of character and wise, yet compassionate, loving, and faithful. God called him a man after his own heart, a man who would do all of God's will. And when you read David's Psalms, which are many, and you read the story of his life, this is what you'll find. But with all of his strengths, you've got to remember that he too was far from perfect. Two glaring sins you cannot overlook. The first was his sin with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah lust, adultery, deceit, and murder. Startling, really. And the second glaring sin was his dealing with his son Abnon in Absalom. Here, David totally fails to protect someone who had been abused and tries to hide. What had happened. It's terrible. These these two moments are set aside as the darkest days of his marvelous rule. Again, great king, yes, but he's human. There is sin in his heart, so he's not enough. Remember, uh, as good a king he was, a physical king will never be able to stop the sin lurking in every human's heart. But the main reason why you have to mention David when you talk of the kings is because of something called the Davidic Covenants. Prior to these two issues that I just listed, God makes this promise with David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. And God says that David is going to have a descendant, a family member on the throne forever. In the historical context, you could believe that David thought that this would be one of his kids. And we do see his son, Solomon, taking over the kingdom and ruling for 40 years. But 40 years is not quite forever. Furthermore, while Solomon does some amazing things like building the temple, he's hardly the godly king that is going to establish God's kingdom forever. And as you trace the line of the king's, from Solomon on, the thought of this forever king seems to be lost. Just take, for example, the fact that the line of the kings stops in 587. There are no more kings after that. And just like Gladriel, the lady of light in the Fellowship of the Rings, said, "In some things that should have not been forgotten... Were lost. History became legend, legend became myth. But even though this history became legend, one thing that never did happen and hasn't happened for the Jews is that it wasn't forgotten. They knew, they believed that there is a coming king who will reign on the throne of David forever, and they call him the Messiah. This Davidic Covenant was so important to Israel because almost every king that followed David was compared to David. And you see these statements like, He walked with the Lord like his father David, or He did not walk with the Lord like David. And so throughout the story of the kings, there is this consistent and constant reminder of God's covenant to David. God's promise to David that there would be one to come who would sit on David's throne forever. So let's just for a second step back and remember that we have seen this theme of a coming one all throughout God's great story. In Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent But there was coming one who was going to crush its head. In Genesis 12 and 15, we saw God tell Abraham of a coming son who would be a blessing to every nation in the world. And now here we see this theme of a coming king. The Bible is filled with this messianic picture of a king who will reign on the throne of God's kingdom forever. And so this is how we get from the kings to King Jesus. Just like I said, this promise was not lost in Israel. They were looking for this king. And as time rolls on, from the last king, Zedekiah, who was taken to Babylon to the coming of Jesus, the prophets and the people longed for the day when this Messiah would come. And one night, in a manger in Bethlehem, he is born. And you can't miss the language of how the Bible describes this. Matthew 1 says this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 1 says this. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So it could not be more explicit. Not only is Jesus the son of Abraham, He is the son of David and will be given the throne of David. And it's no coincidence that in both of these genealogies, they both show that from his mom's side, he is the physical offspring of David. And from his father's side, his earthly father's side, he is the legal offspring of David. So Jesus is the offspring of David legally and physically. But as we've seen, A physical and legal descendant of David doesn't matter much if that's all that they are. Because the kings are good on some days and really bad on others. Idle worshipers on some days, yet God lovers on others. Manipulating in some days, yet truthful and sincere in others. But a quick survey of Jesus' life tells us that he was not only different, he was perfect. Yes, he was the physical offspring of David. Yes, he was the legal offspring of David, but he was sent from God. He was God's son. Paul, Peter described it this way. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the normal, everyday activity of earthly kings, good kings and bad kings, was non-existent in this descendant of David. He was perfect. He, he literally obeyed God in every way. And let that sink in for a second. When tempted by greed, sinless. When tempted by the lure of using power for selfish gain, perfect. When tempted by sexual immorality, not a spot. When driven to usurp the authority of others, The Bible tells us that he perfectly submitted to his parents and authorities. So we are not dealing with this normal descendant of David. We are dealing with this perfect descendant of David. While while David's greatest enemy might have been Goliath or the Philistines, the perfect descendant of David, Jesus, came and conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death. He did this by never, not one time, submitting himself to the same old stuff that we or the kings did before us. Never. So sin defeated. Sin conquered in its power as dead as the giant Goliath. So Jesus was the physical, legal descendant of David who lived perfectly and conquered sin. But in order for this guy to rule on David's throne forever, he must live forever. Notice how Paul combines this offspring of David with living forever. He says this in 2 Timothy, Remember Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And that does it. Jesus Christ, the perfect descendant of David, was raised from the dead in order to live on the throne of David forever. But just this this rising from the dead doesn't just mean that he lives forever. It means that the penalty of sin, the debt that all men pay, has been defeated. Jesus' resurrection is the final nail in the coffin of man's greatest enemy, sin and death. This perfect descendant of David conquered the power of sin and satisfied the penalty of death by dying in our place and dying the death that you and I deserved. In rising from the dead, he secured for all time that there is no more wrath for those who put their trust in him. This is why Paul would say that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And so here is what you have. Jesus is the physical, legal descendant of King David who lived perfectly, who was raised from the dead. But you can't miss this one more thing. In order to be the king that would sit on David's throne, Jesus would have to be greater than David. Look what the Bible says in the book of Acts chapter 2, and then we'll wrap it up. Brothers, I say, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of Holy Spirit, he has poured out his this that you yourselves are seen and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here, Peter proves to the Israelites and to you and me that Jesus Christ is the promised king who would sit on David's throne forever because he is greater than David. And Peter says this about David. David was buried, he died. David, as a prophet and man of God, foresaw Jesus' resurrection from the dead. David, who did not ascend into the heavens like Jesus, looked to Jesus as Lord and King. So in other words, David, the greatest king, looked to and believed in the greater king. David submitted himself to King Jesus, the perfect descendant of David, who conquered man's greatest enemy and has ascended to the right hand of God forever. So to... To finish, I just have four questions for you. Let me make a statement and then I'll ask you a question. King Jesus, therefore, is the king of God's kingdom and he is reigning now. Do you agree with that? Those are the facts. King Jesus is the king of God's kingdom and he is reigning now. So question number one, if you agree with that, is this. Are you submitted to this king? First, are you submitted to him as Lord and Savior? One day the clouds will part. Jesus will descend on the earth to reveal in absolute clarity that he is the king. Paul told the Philippians that one day every knee will bow. That every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So dear friend, are you submitted to Jesus? Will you submit to Jesus as his friend or as his enemy? And submitting to Jesus now makes you his friend. So I would plead with you first, submit to him now as Lord and Savior. Give your life to this reigning king now. And if you're a Christian, are you submitted to his ways? Listen, do do you really believe that Jesus is the answer to everything? Take a second to really ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that his ways are best and that they lead to flourishing? do you really believe that Jesus is the answer to the chaos that we see all around us? If so, just remember some of the things that Jesus asked of his followers. Love your neighbor. Really love your neighbor. Your neighbor who disagrees with you. Your neighbor who looks different than you. Your neighbor who You've had this altercation with because of something that happened with the trash cans. Do you know your neighbor's names? Jesus said, Be reconciled. Those people that have hurt you and offended you, go reconcile with them. Jesus said, Do not lust. Jesus said, Do not commit adultery. Jesus said, Love your enemies. Those people who see completely different than you and who oppose you, love them. Jesus said, practice disciplines fasting, praying, giving. When you fast, when you pray, when you give. Jesus said, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Jesus said, honor your parents. Jesus said, take up your cross, deny self and follow him. Jesus said, lead by being a servant. Jesus said, care for the poor. Jesus said, go make disciples. Make him known. Jesus said, choose the narrow way. Jesus said, forgive 70 times 7. When someone hurts you and offends you, forgive them. Jesus said, keep guard against sin. So are you submitted to him? Are you submitted to his ways? Do you believe that everything that he said is best? Do you believe that everything that he said for you is going to bring flourishing and bring order into chaos? Are you submitted to the king in his ways? Second question is this First, a statement King Jesus transforms hearts. Do you agree? Therefore, are you being transformed? When you think of these kings, remember, uh, a political, a military king, leader is not enough. The right president, the right governor, the right in-charge person is not enough. Rather, we need a king who transforms sinful hearts. And dear friend, listen, that king has come. Jesus transforms those who trust in him into a new creation. We are no longer enemies and rebels against God's will. We are friends and we are children of God desiring to love and serve Him. We are given the Spirit of God to transform us, to live pure lives as those who have been bought with a price, to worship God and to call Him Father instead of worshiping our desires, to find our identity in Him instead of the acceptance and approval of, or the applause of others. Only Jesus can transform hearts. When we place our faith in him, the eternal savior, the king of God's kingdom, God transforms us. He forgives us of our sin and frees us from the power and the penalty of sin. And while the presence of sin still remains, he gives us his spirit, which creates in us new desires, new drives, new passions, new behavior. So the question is this, King Jesus transforms hearts. Are you being transformed? Question three. Have you ever been embarrassed by your leaders? Have you ever been disillusioned? Ever been disappointed? Ever looked at your leaders and you go, Man, I can't believe that they would do this. You hear of their moral failure? You hear of their lack of integrity and you go, Oh my word, I can't believe that they would do that. And it's hard. How many of you could probably say, Yeah, I've been disappointed. I've been hurt. It's happened. I could raise my hand. But listen, believe this King Jesus does not disappoint. Peter said that anybody who puts his or her trust in Jesus, The cornerstone, the king, would not be put to shame. Church, listen. King Jesus does not disappoint. He will not let you down. He will not disappoint. He will not put you to shame. He's a righteous king. He's the sovereign, good, kind, perfect king seated on the throne of heaven. And he will never do anything to embarrass you or put you to shame. So have you trusted in him? Are you submitted to this king? As Lord, as Savior, are you submitted to His ways? Do you believe that His ways, the ways of the King, are best? Has your heart been renovated by Him? Are you living in a way that says, My King has come? Let's pray. And let's ask God to do work in our hearts. Father, you are good. Thank you for sending your son Jesus, the king of your kingdom, to come to earth, live the life we can't live, we won't live. Take our place, pay the penalty for sin, and then conquer death, sin, and the grave, and Therefore, you've you've made him the the promised king that was to rule on David's throne forever. Father, I pray for those who may not know you. I pray for those who may not know King Jesus. I pray that today that they would see the beauty of this King, that they would submit to this King as Lord and Savior. God, I pray for those of us who do believe in Jesus as uh, Savior those of us who have trusted in him lord if if we are not fully convinced that his ways are best father would you convict us we repent and help us to see that your ways are best your ways are what brings order into chaos your ways are what brings flourishing your ways are what brings life into things that are dead father i pray uh that you would transform us. You are in the business of transformation. I pray that your spirit would, would transform us minute by minute, moment by moment to make us more like the king. And when we fail, Lord, may we run to you as fast as we can to find forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion. And then, Lord, let us be a people who, who go out and, and, and we do what we can to bring you, the King, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our homes, into our relationships, into our places of work. Because you are the answer for all people. And Father, I pray that those of us who have been disappointed by leaders, who have been hurt, who have been offended, who have been disillusioned, Father, would you would you do a work of healing in your people? And would you help us to, to place our hope? Not in earthly kings, leaders, presidents, governors, mayors, but to, to place our hope in you. Because you will never disappoint. And you are the one king that we all need. So would you do your work in your people as they... Uh, Examine themselves with these questions as we respond.